स्मार्ट कास्ट लिसनिंग टू अंदुस्तान टाइम्स प्रोडक्शन ब्रॉट टू यू बाय एच टी स्मार्ट कास्ट हाई आई एम धामनी एंड आई एम द होस्ट ऑफ जेंडर क्वेश्चन इन दिस सीजन आई बी गेटिंग अप क्लोज एंड पर्सनल ऑन इश्यूज दैट रियली मैटर आर जेंडर एंड सेक्शुअलिटी दैट आर सो सेंट्रल टू हुई आर On March 15 the Karnataka High Court held that the hijab or the headscarf worn by many Muslim women and girls was not essential to the practice of Islam and that educational institutions in the state had the right to ask their students to not wear it with the prescribed uniform for this episode of the gender question we spoke to two Muslim women one of whom wears the hijab and one who doesn't to hear from them what they made of the issue Ghazala Jamil is an academician at the Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi and she's the author of a book which came out in 2018 called Muslim Women Speak of Dreams and Shackles our second guest Sania Maryam is a PhD scholar at IIT Bombay Monash Academy which is a dual degree program She also runs Muslim Women's Study Circle which is a two-year-old collective. Now, before we dive into the interviews, let's take a quick recap of what happened. The issue began when a group of young Muslim students last year claimed that a college in Udupi had denied them entry into their classrooms because they had worn hijabs and that was against the institute's dress code. In January a group of students in another Karnataka city protested except this time they were demanding that they be allowed to wear saffron shawls into the classrooms so over the next few weeks right wing hindu men and women protested against the hijab in some places these men and women wore saffron scarves saffron turbans and even carried saffron flags and heckled hijab wearing students outside colleges In some places college staff did not permit hijab wearing students to enter the campus. While all of these um events were happening uh, on January 31, a group of young Muslim uh, girl students essentially filed petitions in the Karnataka High Court and they sought that the right to wear the hijab be read into articles 14, 19 and 25 of the Indian Constitution. On February 5, the government of Karnataka issued an order which stated that the dress codes that had been prescribed by the College Development Committee of pre-university colleges which come under the purview of the state those should be followed. Uh also that students must adhere to the uniforms in government and private schools. Wherever no dress code is prescribed students were required to only wear such attire that would accord with equality and integrity and not disrupt public order so that was essentially the sum total of the order that came out on the 5th of february now on the 8th of february the high court began to hear all these petitions but because there were all these protests that were happening and um uh, young muslim women students were being heckled outside colleges in some instances colleges themselves were not permitting these uh, their students to enter if they were wearing hijab so uh, two days after the high court began hearing these petitions on the 8th of february the high court passed an interim order 
And the order said that, in fact, students should stop wearing, uh, whether it is the hijab or saffron shawl, or use any kind of religious flag while attending colleges. And then on the 15th of March, it passed an order that stated that wearing hijab was not essential to the practice of Islam. Right, now, March and April is typically the exam time for most students, right? On April 5th, the Karnataka Primary and Secondary Education Minister, V.C. Nagesh, said that the government had decided, the Karnataka government had decided against allowing teachers wearing hijab to take part in the invigilation process of class 10 examinations. He said that it would not be, quote, morally right, unquote, for teachers to wear the hijab, while students weren't permitted to wear the hijab as per the Karnataka High Court's order. So thus, a court order that was meant for one specific group of people has ended up affecting another. Now, back to our guests. Ghazala, who has in fact been on this show before and who does not wear the hijab, said that the debate cannot be reduced to one of essential practice of religion because to do so, is to flatten other equally important aspects of the situation, such as access to education. By making it about uniformity among students, she said, we're missing the most obvious thing. Not all uniforms within a particular school are, uh, uh, are also the same. Uh, men and women, for example, wear different uniforms in co-educational institutions. Uh, so, you know, if we were to really be invested into gender equality, should we argue that men and women should be made to wear uh, uh, exact same uniform? So if shalwar kameez is a uniform in one school, in some school it could be without a dupatta, in another school it could be with a dupatta. In some schools, girl students wear tunics, in other schools, girl students wear shalwar kameez, you know, so uniforms are also different. The meaning of any particular piece of garment is something cultural and it's constructed. It's not something which is inherent in that uh, garment itself that never changes. So, um, and as far as religion and religious practices are concerned, it's also nobody's case that, you know, uh, different cultures and different times, you know, communities over time, have interpreted religious scriptures also very differently. You know, they get critiqued as well. They get interpreted, reinterpreted all the time. And yes, courts themselves have done that. Uh, but to, to, uh, to have a conclusive judgment in a court of law saying that something is a, an essential practice of a religion and something is not in essential practice of B religion and making that only that the criteria of, you know, uh, judging, even if it was only about freedom of religion. In this particular case, obviously, it's not only about freedom of religion, it is about that. But it is also about right to education. Uh, you know, the hijab is as a garment is uh, not just it's not just a question of religion it is also a question of uh, socio-cultural um, symbol and much like any other socio-cultural uh, symbol or signifier it is imbued with meaning you know that gets sort of constructed over time and it changes therefore also over time um, you've written about this also Ghazala can you can you just help us unpack 
what exactly do you mean when you talk about the hijab as something more than religion? What is that more than? Right. So, um, well, you know, I, I would rather, you know, nuance it rather than make a binary between religion and politics. I would like to nuance this a little bit. So uh, to say that religion and politics have never been, uh, you know, uh, sort of embroiled with each other, that's not, you know, the case that I'm trying to make. Of course, that happens. And uh, religions like other cultural uh, institutions or artifacts have also traveled across the world. So what the scriptures say gets, as I said earlier, uh, interpreted and reinterpreted in different localities and different times differently. And uh, uh, the Islamic uh, requirement for, uh, uh, you know, uh, Muslims to dress modestly as the word is often used when you know discuss this has been interpreted very differently by different cultures so you can see that muslims across the world uh, have certain common practices and in some ways they uh, there are nuances and they differ in some of these practices so african muslims for example wear uh, slightly different kind of dresses and of course you know malaysia and so on now, uh, but there has been globalization as well and, and fashions also travel. Uh, the scarf or the hijab also uh, has similarities the way it is worn in different parts of the world. And, uh, uh, you know, in India, for example, the Iranian way of doing it or uh, some of the other more, um, you know, affluent Middle Eastern countries, for example, the fashions that are followed in Dubai or some other place, you know, those are also something that affluent Muslim women in India have, have tried to emulate and follow. So, so there, there is that uh, element as well. There's an element of religious piety and trying to be, um, uh, trying to live one's life uh, in, in a sense that the faithful beliefs, uh, believe, you know, that it takes them nearer to their God. Uh, on the other hand, it can be also a political statement about what, what you are allowed to do and what you're not, not allowed to do, and therefore you react to that. Uh, it, can be, uh, it can be a way of, you know, fashioning yourself in a certain way in, within subcultures where it is not, uh, you know, given those meanings. Like maybe, for example, in the, in the mainstream culture in India, it might be common sense that to wear a burqa or to uh, wear a scarf is oppressive and the woman is doing it only because she is oppressed. But there are subcultures where it is not an experience of oppression, but the woman might just be, you know, uh, expressing a way of... Uh, uh, wearing garments that make her feel, um, uh, you know, well turned out, more fashionable, for example. So there are, uh, you know, uh, various fashionable cuts of burqa or uh, the way to wrap the hijab over one's head, the scarf or a dupatta or whatever that piece of cloth may be to fashion it into a certain kind of hijab. So there are various ways in women in which women also in a patriarchal society there are, and especially in a society like India, where there is also a lot of violence against women in public spaces, 
Uh, and when the state, for example, uh, proves uh, less effective in uh, ensuring safety of women in, in public spaces or even in private spaces, there's so much sexual violence uh, everywhere. Uh, uh, families tend to, uh, uh, you know, put limits on women's mobility in a way that they think they are trying to, you know, ensure their safety as well. So sometimes, you know, patriarchy is not always oppressive. It's sometimes also benign patriarchy. So yes, you know, that happens. And many women find that if they wear, you know, uh, uh, hijab, their families feel more uh, reassured uh, and then they can go out and go to school or, or uh, you know, in other public spaces and they themselves feel probably a little more uh, capable of dealing with uh, public spaces in those garments. We all, you know, the way we dress up is always uh, about how we are putting ourselves out in public spaces between uh, friends in amongst strangers in office spaces everywhere so why do you feel that this is a question of access to education for muslim women now um so you know in terms of uh, the the stereotype of muslim women as oppressed as women who are not allowed to do anything of their own volition or their choice etc what we were seeing, uh, uh, you know, after the anti-CA movement is that Muslim women uh, were, you know, politically aware, they were articulate, they wanted education. So they were, they were breaking in the last, you know, uh, two, three years, they've broken uh, so many stereotypes about themselves in the public domain. So I think uh, this, uh, you know, artificial controversy that has been created in Karnataka uh, is a backlash, you know, on Muslim women's assertion that they are not the stereotype that they have been made to. And that especially the burqa stereotype that it, you know, doesn't allow them mobility, that it does not allow them any agency uh, that they are uh, kept away from uh, the parda keeps them away from education, etc. Was not true. Uh, they were going out. They were getting an education, and now then they've been. This has been uh, made an excuse to deny them an education uh, because they've been told that either you can be visibly a Muslim or you can get an education. You know, so you can't do both. Ghazala directs our gaze to the authorities who interrupted the Muslim girl students' access to the classroom through rules on dress codes and uniforms. And she takes it away from the stereotype of the Muslim family that oppresses the girl by making her wear the hijab or a burqa. Right? Ghazala points out that in fact hijab-clad girls were going to school and they were getting an education. Right? And it was the school authorities and later the government and the court that asked them to remove the hijab, putting in place a possible barrier in their access to education. The hijab has to be contextualized in the context where um, mosques, um, prayer spaces are being um, banned and the azan is being banned and um, businesses, Muslim businesses and eateries are being boycotted where um, meat shops uh, run by Muslims are being closed. So it has to be contextualized in a much larger um, 
idea of uh, you know the practice of islamophobia which is happening in india that's sanya maryam though the judgment does not apply to sanya's institute or to other hijab wearing women around the country sanya who wears the hijab said that she was quite disappointed with it hijab uh, in islam and for me is much more than a piece of cloth and um, it is uh, you must uh, have read that it is for men as well as women and uh, it encapsulates a larger idea of uh, modesty of how to interact it, it comes with uh, it's not just about um, clothing but it's also about how we interact and i just want to take a step back and tell you why um, why we want to wear it or why do we wear it and why do i specifically wear it so islam essentially means submission and when we um accept islam as a way of living what we do is we um we are required to rise above these attachments and submit to god alone so this is to say that all these um worldly things are definitely required and one must strive for it but that shouldn't be the ultimate goal so worshiping god becomes the ultimate goal and you know if this conceptualization of ibadat or worshiping god um it takes into account everything which is also what we eat how we earn money how we dress ourselves um to the minutest of things within that also comes the concept of modesty the concept of hijab and this is the kind of obedience which kind of shapes our lives and um it is not just restricted to practicing it or doing it when we we are in the mosque but it affects our everyday lives as well and so i what i want to say is that that is the idea from which hijab comes from if uh, i want uh, if someone comes and says why do you wear it i i feel like it would be a very reductionist notion to say few things because it comes from a larger idea of what we believe in and how we believe in it if it's asked every day in our classrooms and our workspaces then yeah. it becomes exhausting and um i feel like why is the burden on us to explain our conception of devotion or piety to god right. to you because right. this is what we do and uh, am i going to explain everything why are we eating halal food why are we like wh- why who gives you that thing to keep on questioning this and to us to keep on explaining why is the onus on us to keep on explaining uh, why we do it but if it is asked generally i don't have any problem in explaining why i wear the hijab right sanya i also want to understand uh, one thing about the the, the the hijab as a piece of garment which is not just about uh, religious practice but is also about social practice is also about community practice it's also about something that you uh, that has a that has a role in the way that you live your life every single day right can you tell us how as a piece of garment as well in what ways does the hijab help you negotiate spaces yeah um you just saying this reminds me of something which my mother said to me the first time i wore hijab so she said you know we wear this so that we can go out in the public sphere and talk or interact with dignity so don't ever think of hijab as something you're wearing because you want to stay inside hijab is not in the private sphere it's not mandated in the private sphere so people tend tend to think that wearing a veil is about staying within the confines of the four wall or not being able to interact with um other people in the society but what 
hijab essentially does is that it gives me uh, the agency to go out in the public sphere, interact with all kinds of people, and still um, um, be able to do it. Muslim women body parts were being auctioned, and um, then we saw the sali deals and the bully uh, deals. And uh, in a way, it makes me uh, a bit fearful when I step out. Um, when I step out, because it feels like someone is hating me, and it, it's hating me because of my identity, and I am carrying that with me. So I might get attacked. And this is this genuine fear, genuine fear when I am traveling in the train, because the amount of um, the amount of toxicity that people are consuming through these fake WhatsApp messages and WhatsApp university, it is in every way possible uh, creating an atmosphere of hatred which is directly impacting us. Even if we are not getting physically attacked, everyone is not genetic. But just the mental burden of knowing that these people are reading these messages and they are probably not seeing you in the best light. And if given a chance, someone might just attack you. Just living with that fear is a very, very difficult thing. And it has become an everyday affair for Muslim women like us who have to go out, who are interacting, who are studying. And, um, and every day this is increasing. Sanya makes an important point about how, because of the verdict, the Muslim woman once again has become the focal point of various conservative political agendas. People are forced to think that how come someone studying in IIT is wearing a hijab? And they are forced to think of uh, it outside uh, of terms such as, you know, um, their parents are making them do it or their fathers or husbands are making them do it. Right. Uh, and all these Muslim men, um, they are forcing uh, their women. I mean, this conception also of Muslim men as violent, aggressive, threatening, and Muslim women as coy, uh, you know, people... Uh, Submitting, women, as you said, but submitting in this, women, yeah. yes, <laughs> black voices. So, I think hijab makes um, people a bit uncomfortable in every sphere. So, if it's the right wing, they would uh, they would question this, like why is someone who's so educated doing it? And if it's also uh, maybe let's say in the liberal progressive sphere where feminist conceptions may not um, align with the wearing of hijab, some of them, not all of them. And it also forces them to understand what is your conception of freedom and how wide is it? And how can freedom as a concept be just reduced to a piece of cloth? Here, the larger question is not just of whether it is a patriarchal or not. And let's leave the women who want to do it or who don't want to do it to decide that. But here, the question is of privacy. It's of disrobing. It's of declothing. It's of... Um, of um, undignified ways of through which uh, we are being asked to do that and yet sanya is hopeful i essentially believe that india is a pluralistic society and if we keep on uh, reinforcing and if we keep on reasserting that you know this is how we stay this is what we believe in then there will be some space created if not now maybe in the future This is your host, Dhamini, signing off. You can reach me on Twitter at Dhamini or on HD Smartcast on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. 
To listen to more podcasts, log on to www.hdsmartcast.com. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.